Hello everyone, my name is Kendall and welcome to Unofficial Book Club, where life and stories meet. And just like any book club, we'll only be spending half the time actually talking about books. In these episodes of this podcast, I will be sitting down with various guests to connect over who they are, their happiness, and lessons they've learned. I believe life is like a book. Each chapter is a piece of our development and growth with the good, the bad, and everything in between that ultimately makes up our story. Now, before we get started, I want to remind you that my guests and I will be sharing our own personal experiences and opinions throughout this episode and all future episodes. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode. I'm super excited as a part two to the last set of episodes. I'm really excited for our guest today. She went to George Mason and studied early childhood education and then got her master's in education. She is an executive leadership and culture coach, a certified Dare to Lead facilitator, the founder and CEO of Horner Education Consulting Group, and the co-founder of the Lucy Leadership Project, and most recently, a published author. She's the co-author of Unwrapped, The Pursuit of Justice for Women Educators. Her co-author I had on last week, Dr. Kendra Washington-Bass, but please welcome Kelly Peetz-Corner. Kelly, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Kendall. And you know what? I know at some point I'm going to call you Kendra because I do that to her. <laughs> I sometimes call her Kendall, Kendall and I'm like, wait, wait, no, wrong one. So yeah, too many Ks yeah. and too many similar syllables. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Thanks for, for being me. here. I'm so Absolutely. excited. Me too. And, I mean, I gave like a very resume style introduction for you, but for the listeners, Kelly is also family to me. By choice, not by blood, as I've said in previous episodes with her daughters who were guests on here, Madison and Shelby. So I have an extra special place for you and extra excitement for this book. I was telling Kendra, like, it was phenomenal. And I really enjoyed it. And as somebody who's not in education, I wasn't sure how much of it, I knew I would like it, but I wasn't sure how much of it would really resonate with me and how much I would understand. And from like the first chapter, I was just like hooked. I was like, wow. Yep. Yep. Especially when you were talking about leaving one of your previous jobs. And I was just like, wow, I understand that feeling. Um, being a peacemaker, I understand that feeling. And so it was, it was a great, it was a great read. I really enjoyed it. Oh, that's great to hear. You know, I think when Kendall, when <laughs> already, <laughs> already, when Ken, Kendra and I um, decided, you know, during the when everybody was shut down during the pandemic, we were like, we have nothing else to do. Let's write a book. Okay. <laughs> we wrote it um, specifically for, with, with women education leaders in mind, because that's our background, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that's who our target audience is and was, but I think what you read in the book is every woman's story. Yeah. It can be even though we talk from our experience as educators, you know, I have over 35 years experience as an educator in multiple um, fashions, but I think that when we tell our own individual origin story, and then we tell our experiences based on the topics that we're trying to address, I think every woman can relate to what we've gone through. I think every and and for your listeners who haven't seen or um, didn't see uh, Kendra's episode, you know, Kendra is a black woman and she's telling from her perspective. And I think every black woman or woman of color can, can relate to what she goes through, has gone through. And every woman, white woman or woman in general as a collective can relate to what I write about. So yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that because even though the target audience is what our, what we know, who we know best. Mm -hmm. um, I think any woman can relate to it. Yeah. And I've told everybody to buy it. And I know so many of my teacher friends, I was like, especially you guys will get, will like enjoy this and love this. And I think it's, I think it's great. But Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about you. So tell me, is there anything else that I didn't say in the introduction that you would like to share about yourself to the listeners? Um, let's see. So let's, when I, when I started at George Mason University as an undergrad, um, I was pre-law, 
when I went into George Mason. I yeah. was not in education. I was pre-law. And what happened was what I had to take, you know, as an elective, some kind of human growth and development course. And the course I took was in early childhood education. And we had to do a practicum at that time in a school to work with, with students. And I fell in love with it. I just, you know, I watched the dance that this second grade teacher did in um, between discipline and teaching and, you know, entertaining. And, and I just found it remarkable. So um, after that, I decided, no, I think I want to do that thing. I want to do what she's doing. Um, so, so I didn't start out in education, but within the first year um, in my undergrad, I was there. Um, what would part you have studied my... law-wise had you gone to law school and continued on? So I, I believe where I was headed and my life took this track, professional life took this track, but in a different way. And I was going to go into law to do more social justice type of work, mm-hmm. you know, and to advocate for mm-hmm. PE, whether that is, you know, to be a public defender for people who all, all people deserve, you know, that kind of representation or so I never saw myself in like corporate yeah. law or anything, but it was more, more kind of social advocacy work. And I thought that was the best way to get there. What I soon learned was I could get there another way. I could yeah. still do that work and I could do that through my education. And how interesting that your youngest daughter, Shelby, is now kind of following those footsteps. That's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. She's, she's we all end up at- yeah, we all end up being our parents at some in some way, shape, or form. That's exactly. so exciting. That's yeah. so cool. And she yeah. just took the bar, which is also exciting. So yes. good morning to her. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So then education, you kind of never looked back. Like you felt like that's where you needed to be. Yeah, always, always. Started out um as the second grade teacher. Um was only in two schools in Fairfax County, public schools in Fairfax, Virginia only taught in two schools there. Uh, I helped open the second school. Um, Amazing experience with an amazing principal and staff. Um, I've taught up to fourth grade, taught fourth grade one year, and then asked my principal to put me right back into second and third grade. (laughs) Um, You know, the second and third graders just hold on to every word that the teacher said. I'm like, "Mm, no, those fourth graders are, you know, they're, 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 they're doubting me. They're asking me questions. I'll give me back my second and third graders. Um, so I just loved it. I loved it. And then, um, as I describe in the book, I had a mentor who was teaching second grade next to me and she was very politically active in the County, um, and in the school district, she ended up becoming, um, a state Senator. She ended up becoming a Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services for the state of Virginia. Um, But she got me involved in the Teachers Association and in lobbying efforts. And I loved that. Um, And so that's really what kind of kicked off my social activism. And and when I think about it, I go back and I was involved in the Student um, Education Association at George Mason as well. Um, So that, that kind of social activism, I realized early on, I could mm-hmm. still do it. I can just do it within education and advocate for things, really the rights of students, um, what students need, what students deserve, and mostly what teachers deserve and what they need in order to reach their students. So, so that was a part of my career, a huge part of my mm-hmm. career um, all the way through. And that's really cool that you you say that, you've said that now, that you kind of found your way back to the social justice aspect and advocating for people. And I think it's interesting that in kind of any job or any space, you can always find a little bit of what you're looking for in it, whatever that may be. And it's always interesting to see people, you know, not everything is as black and white as it may seem. And there's some gray in there. You just kind of have to find it or make it for yourself and like forge your own path. But I also, I'm dying to know because I didn't realize it until you just said it, that you did at George Mason, you did some, you know, advocacy work and whatnot, but I was reading it in the book and you were like my age, like barely 30 years old when you ran for the Fairfax Education Association and won and served as our president. How did you find 
the courage or feel like you were worthy of running in a leadership position at such a young age and so early in your career? Part of it is just being incredibly naive. Um, <laughs> uh, part of it is why not, you know, and not knowing. <laughs> and, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you, let me, I'll answer that question, but let me give you another scenario. So I got really involved in the association and I became an association representative for my building, which was an elected position. They had to mm-hmm. elect you for that. Um, I got elected to the board of directors. I served on the board of directors. Um, I I served on several committees, both at the local, state, and national level. So that would be Fairfax and then Virginia and then the National Education Association. So I was doing that. And then I remember, um, this is before I ran for president of the association. I remember the board had, the school board had decided that they were going to um, cut our salaries, um, to, to, to save with the budget. And there was a date, you know, I always remember July 15th was the date when your salary became official for the following year. So, you know, you, it was hard to get out of your contract, um, after that, that date. Well, the board decided that after that date, and as an association, we wanted to sue the board. And in the state of Virginia, you could not do a class action suit because it's a right to work state. So someone had to put their name on a suit against Fairfax uh, Fairfax County Public Schools. And they approached me and said, would you consider putting your name on the lawsuit? And I just went, okay, sure. I'll sue the school district. Why not? (laughs) So, so we, so we, I did that. So if you ever Google Kelly Peaks Horner versus Fairfax uh, <laughs> Public Schools. There actually is a lawsuit out out there, and I remember the day we were in court, and um, my principal tells me this story. The superintendent was in my building, and he knew I was very active, and he knew me, and he said, "Oh, before I leave, I want to go up and say hi to Kelly." And my principal said, as she's walking down the hall, she remembers I have a substitute that day. And then this pit in her stomach, realizing why I wasn't there because I was in court suing him. Uh Actually, when he got to my door, she said to him, well, she's in court today. And he goes, oh, yeah, she's suing me. I forgot. (laughs) So, so, you know, it was so honestly, it was I would say it was part young, being young, wanting to make a difference. You know, I never in my head went through, okay, what does that mean? What could that mm-hmm. be for my job? I just knew someone needed to, to speak up. And if that was yeah. the only way that could happen. Um, so it was time to, for uh, elections again, for the president elect. And I was approached by several board members and they said, we'd really like you to consider running. I had never even thought, I said, oh, are you kidding? No, we yeah. really were like, we'll back you. We will help you. We will. And so I did. And my my campaign slogan was the future is now, meaning that, you know, I had a board that had five past presidents on it. And these people had been around for a little while, kind of like mirrors our country yeah, in a way. Literally. And so my whole um, campaign was about you know, it's time to get a different way of thinking into the association. It's time for different kind of advocacy. Um, we saw people entering the profession that weren't necessarily kind of union-minded or union experienced, but yet they needed to understand that we are advocating for them to have what they need in order to mm-hmm. do, to fulfill their own mission. But that message had to look different, had to start looking different. So I ran and I was elected and then I served one year as president elect and then you served two years. You could not serve consecutive um, terms. So I served two years as president. One of the best, best experiences. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. How, how was it? You felt like it it was good. It was a great experience. Yeah, it was a great experience. And, you know, you're really working with the superintendent at the time. So the superintendent at the time you know, we just set some ground rules and said, you know, I won't attack you personally. He won't, won't attack me personally. Here are the things we can agree on. Let's move forward together. You know, we restructured the salary scale. We, at the time, school boards in the state of Virginia were appointed. They were not elected. 
And so you had to, you had to pass a referendum in your locality. And so I chaired the referendum to get the school board elected in Fairfax. And so we did that successfully. So we, we decided these are the things we can work on together. These are the things we're going to have to part company. And I'm going to have to advocate for my members that I represent. And he's going to have to advocate for, you know, the board or his budget or, or his own initiatives, but that we would never make it. And, and this was my lesson. And I, and I try to carry it through today when I have political conversations with people, we never made it personal. It was, yeah. it was not, it was not personal. It was about understanding where each other was coming from and maybe being able to get each other to move a little bit and move closer yeah. to agreement. But if we couldn't, then, you know, let the best woman win. <laughs> <laughs> As they should. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. So it was a great experience and it, and the training I got at the national level, I mean, I carried that training with me yeah. everywhere. So it was just, it, it was professional develop. I never would have gotten through traditional, you know, uh, education, yeah. but it was, it was excellent. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's so cool. And that's very admirable. And that's really, I, I, I think about myself now and I was like, would I ever have the courage or feel, I think I, I, I did, I don't have the naivety. Like, I think I would just have to think everything through before I do it. But when you say it like that, it's like, why not? Like what's the worst that can happen is they say no, or you don't get elected. Right. So you might as well. Yeah. And then if you're elected, and I say this to anyone who's thinking of stepping up because we need good people Mm -hmm. at all levels, right? To step up, surround yourself with really good people that have, that share your own mission, that share your values, that have your leadership interest in. And I had good people around me. So when I didn't have the, because I was, I think I was only in the classroom for like eight or nine years before Mm -hmm. I was elected. It was, I was in the, I mean, I mean, my half my board came to my wedding. You know, uh, when I was, when I, um, had Maddie, my oldest daughter, you know, the board threw a shower for me. So, you know, I, I, it was during that period of time, but I surrounded myself with people who, when I didn't have the experience or the history to go back to, they could hate, here's why we do it this way, but we can do it differently. Here's what, and then I, you know, ultimately I was the decision maker and I'd say, nope, we're going to, we're going to try something different. And you know, see what happens. No, that's super. That's amazing. I'm really like in awe of that. And so can you tell us a little bit about not only Horner Education Consulting Group, but also the Lucy Leadership Project? And yeah, I I mean, how exciting that you get to, first of all, you started your own business, but then also just tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, I had been working with a an international organization after I left Fairfax for about 16 years. And most people have heard of Gallup organization. And usually if you hear about it, you hear it from the Gallup poll, um, a lot of political polling, a lot of, you know, those kinds of things. So um, but I worked in there. um, I was recruited out of Fairfax to work with them. um, And I worked in their education practice. and I loved that work. Just absolutely loved it. I got to work with school district all over the country, work with superintendents and school leaders and just dream and envision and figure out what do you want? What do you want to do differently? And because we are a research company, I could ask, what don't you know? What, what can we help you find out? Um, what studies can we run? So I, I loved that. And, and then we would measure how we're making impact. And so when you would see, you know, more teachers are staying, you know, in a school district because of some of that work, it was, I just loved the work. Um, Things changed within the organization. It became a little bit more toxic for me to stay there. So I left. And when I left, you know, I think it's something that um, I probably should have left two years prior than I did, but I come from the generation of you stick it out, you know, you you, you stay with the company, um, you know, you get a job and you stay there for 30 years, then you retire. And so, you know, leaving was really scary yeah. um, for me. And I had been there for so long. And again, I loved the work. It was just the environment that I couldn't stay in any, any longer. And so honestly, your generation and other generations who's, who get to that faster than my generation does, I just applaud that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that no, this is not for me, I'm leaving. So when I left there, 
you know, you go into this and this is, this is a mindset that many women go into. You go into the scarcity mindset. I, I don't use the word imposter syndrome because I think that is, that is um, a description that was inflicted upon us that we accept too quickly. But I use the word scarcity, which is, am I enough to do something else? What do I have to bring to the table? Um, you know, here I just built a career for, you know, 13 years at, Gall- at uh, Fairfax, 16 years at Gallup, and I'm still in that scarcity mm-hmm. mindset. So out of fear, I applied for everything. And I'd be in the middle of these interviews and I'd be like, I don't want to work for you. I don't want to do that, you know, <laughs> or I'd be offered something and I'm like, no, this just is kidding. <laughs> yep. Th- th- I don't want to do this either. <laughs> so someone asked me, the, a friend of mine asked me a pivotal question. And she said, describe for me your best days when you were at Gallup and when you were in the, at, in the school district, what, what were you doing? And so I started thinking about, you know, I loved working with school leaders. I loved helping them know their own strengths and talents better so they could be better leaders. I loved helping them figure out how can you create cultures that your teachers can show up, the people you lead can show up and really do their best work. And so she said to me, then do that. And I was said to her, where? She said, create it, create it. Why don't you create it yourself? You have built this, and this is the scarcity mindset, right? So she said, you've built this, this personal brand out there that you, that people know you and that school districts know you and school leaders know you, that they trust you, that you, so I said, okay, so that's when I created uh, Horner Education Consulting Group. It didn't start with that name. Um, and this is the thing that I would tell anybody, especially women out there who say, yes, I'd like to start my own thing. Just do it. But no, it might not look the same three years, four years, five years down the road because it evolves, right? It evolves over time. So, um, so I started, uh, that and it, within that practice, I needed, now what do I do? Okay. So I started this LLC, but what do I have to offer? So I went and got my coaching certification. So I do executive education coaching. Then um, in 2019, when I was transitioning out of Gallup, I discovered the work of Brene Brown and read her book um, on Rising Strong and just went all over her website and read everything I could and subscribed to her newsletter. And in 2019, she put out a call for people to apply to be facilitators of her work. And you had to pass some criteria. And one of the things were were my degrees qualified me and the fact that I was a trained coach qualified me. So in July of 2019, I like to say, I spent three days with Brene Brown, but there were 150 (laughs) people in the room uh, and was trained to be a dare to lead facilitator. So I teach courageous skill sets to um, school leaders, to, I specifically like to um, target women school leaders because these are skill sets we're not taught anywhere. Mm-hmm. And these are skill sets that require us to do a deep dive into our own social conditioning. How were we raised? How were we conditioned to show up in the world? What is it that is preventing us from fully showing up and being seen? For me, it was, I was raised to be the peacekeeper in my family, right? So I was the one that, you know, kept the waters calm, that um, made sure mom, you know, had a birthday and Christmas gift from dad and made sure dinner got started and made sure the chores got done. You know, my brother and my younger sister, I was middle child, so I'm the middle <laughs> child. So, you know, they were like, oh, Kelly, you know what? We, we got 15 minutes before mom comes home. We don't have to start yet. And in the meantime, like I'm frenzied because I know that if we, if we do those things, the water stay calm. Well, I carried that social conditioning with me into college, into work. It's why I didn't leave Gallup before I did, because, you know, I wanted to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so that work is some of the, uh, is the work on teaching courageous skill sets is some of the work I love to do the most because especially with women leaders, because I get them in either a virtual room or a room and we really unpack what does vulnerability mean for you? What does courage mean for you? What is your own personal call to courage? What are your values? Um, do you live those values out? I mean, we just go through all of that. And and we're given within that program word words to use and skill sets to use. So in Horner Education Consulting Group, 
Um, I do a lot of culture building, culture creation, courage, uh, courageous skill sets. Um, yeah, so that's 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 a lot of what I do there. So then in 20, when did we look? 2021, 2020, I think it was, when Kendra and I started talking, um, when everyone was kind of locked down, we had this weekly Zoom meeting where we would meet and just talk. And finally one day, I, and I and I knew I wanted to target this work towards women educators. I wanted to target a lot of my work. And she had just gone through something kind of similar. And for your readers, you will read her origin story in the book and, mm-hmm. and hear her on the other podcast but episode. But um, she had gone through something kind of similar to what I did, but later. And so I just texted her one day and said, hey, want to write a book about women's leadership? <laughs> there was no thinking. There was no like, well, let me just first, you know, go off and, and, you know, figure out what, no, she just texted back and said, yes, let's do it. So we embarked on this two year um, journey of writing this book. What, what do we want to say? What do we want it to look like? And we knew we needed to gr- um, uh, make sure that it had a grounding, right? It had to be grounded something. And so we started the Lucy Leadership Project and the Lucy Leadership Project is dedicated to helping women leaders in education, in school districts, even in higher ed, achieve what they want to achieve. And here's the second piece, stay there and thrive on their their terms. Because what people don't realize in in K-12 schools is nearly 80% of the teachers in classrooms are women and less than 25% are senior level leaders in school districts. Most of them are men and most of them are white men. Um, so shocking. shocking. <laughs> when I tell people, well, Kelly, isn't isn't education mostly dominated by women? Yeah, in the classroom. Yeah. And maybe even to the AP level, but past that, not so much. And then when you break it down to women of color, the numbers get worse. So our mission in Lucy Leadership is to have more women leading schools because we firmly believe that if we want to change schools and we want to change the experience for students, it's women that are going to do it. Women leading schools are going to do it. And so Lucy Leadership Project, um, it, we offer, we're offering all kinds of trainings. And so I'll make the announcement today because we just put it, <laughs> put it out today. Um, we now have learning modules on learn, uh, starting, uh, they'll launch September 5th, but people can pre-register for them now at the lucyleadershipproject.com. Um, and they are self-paced modules that women can read the book unwrapped and go through their own learning journey of getting oh, unwrapped. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, they can go through, um, there's, there's videos of Kendra and I talking, there's case studies, there's journal prompts. And so they go through every chapter of the book and they can do their own unwrapping, if you will. Um, it's, a, it's a journey of self-discovery and empowerment for women. And then we'll offer some, we're going to offer some live, you know, um, things as well. And oh, let me just, so pause, cool. let me just pause to tell them who Lucy is. Cause I'm going to always. Uh, yeah, please. I was waiting. I was like, this is an interesting fact. Yes. So Ken and I spent one day all over Google. What do we call this company? Okay, let's look at, um, you know, Greek and Roman mythology. You know, who was a strong, no, 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 we couldn't find that. So all of a sudden we came upon Lucy and Lucy is the oldest anthropological find of human remains that, that is female, that they know was the woman that was found in Ethiopia so the belief from anthropologists is all of us somehow originate from Lucy. What that means is we all originate from an African woman. Mm-hmm. And they called her Lucy because when, after they discovered her and they were doing the cleaning of the bones and all that, and they were having this, the anthropologists were having this party, the song Lucy in the sky with diamonds was playing. And so someone started calling her Lucy. And so that's how it stuck. So we all originate back to Lucy, a, a woman from Africa, from Ethiopia. And so it's the Lucy Leadership Project. Oh, I love that. What a great story. And like, what a great find and how important and, you know, significant that is. 
Really love yeah. that. And I will put a link in the show notes to Lucy's Leadership Project and obviously to the book that everybody should read. It's really great. And we'll talk about it a little bit more in the book club episode with Kelly and Kendra together. So I'm really excited for that. But to talk more about you personally, I want to jump into one of my topics, which is happiness. Can you Mm. define happiness for me in your own words? That's a great question. Um, I would say that happiness for me is when I am really aligned to my my own values, when they're clear and when I am aligned. And when I say aligned, I mean that my behaviors, my practices, the way I move through the world is aligned to my, to my, um, my own values. And that doesn't mean that happiness necessarily means means that I'm comfortable all the time because mm. being aligned, aligned to your values may mean that you need to get a little uncomfortable, but you know, family is a value. So when I'm with my family, um, mm-hmm. I'm happy. Um, uh, friends are a value of mind, you know, and when I say friend family too, I mean, my immediate and extended. So yes, that includes you, Kendall and your family. I so. Yes. <laughs> Just wanted to clarify that. Um, <laughs> friends is a value, you know, yeah. travel is a value. So so when you think about what do you value and you're aligned to that and you're doing those things that align, it 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 brings content and happiness. When I'm not aligned and I'm and I'm living outside those values is when I feel this tug and something, something's not right. And how do you monitor or handle? like the stress or the things that don't make you feel balanced in your life. Yeah. So part of that is, that's such a, part of that is learning how to ask. And this is another woman's issue. Mm -hmm. It's learning how to ask for what you need and what you want. Um, And quite honestly, I learned that language through the training I received through Brittany Brown because I could be, I could be very passive aggressive. I'm not going to tell you what I need, but I'm going to slam some doors <laughs> around here and you're going to know I need something. <laughs> and now, uh, now I have language to be able to say, Hey, here's what's okay. And here's, what's not okay. Yeah. Or in this moment, I'm feeling it about 30% of myself. So I need you to back off or I need you to pick up the slack. Because in any relationship, it's not, I, I don't believe in hundred percent, hundred percent, you know, yeah. because we're not all hundred percent. So, you know, there are moments when I have to be 110% and, you know, my husband partner is 60%, you know, it, it, it's a balancing kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think part of it is, and it's, and again, it's especially for women is asking for what you want and what you need. Yeah. I like that. I also like that it's not a hundred percent each. That's a very nice way of saying it. Cause I think growing up, that's like what I've always heard is that a relationship is like 50, 50 and it's like, you know, so that's a good thing to kind of reaffirm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part of that is here's, here's, what's important to me that I won't budge on. These are my non-negotiables, but these are my negotiables. Yeah. And I, you talk about in your book, um, I believe well-being. can you Mm -hmm. kind of elaborate on what well-being looks like to you, what you discuss a little bit of. Yeah. So I think we confuse well-being with uh, a lot with um, self-care and wellness and, and it's not, and it's different. I think, I think it's really, really important that we clarify well-being and I'll put it in again, in the context of women, because well-being, what we find is one of the number one reasons why women don't thrive in the positions that they um, aspire to be in because we struggle to do that kind of leadership work just like men do it. And society has different expectations for men. Um, And our social conditioning has not caught up yet. We think it has, but all you have yeah. to do is look at the, all you have to do is look at the data coming out of the pandemic. More women came out of the workforce 
it was women who were taking care of the 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 kids at home for schooling you know it was women that lost financially um more than any other group so we haven't caught up i mean we Mm -hmm. haven't we're, we're not as advanced as we think but what happens is we finally get to leadership positions and we say i can do the job just like the man that just left and we're expected to be out seven nights a week. And guess who's taking care of the kids and t- still having to take care of the, the family and the house and all that kind of stuff. So that goes back to asking for what you need and for saying, I can do the job. It might look different mm-hmm. because I need to take care of my well-being than how the, the former person did it. Um, but I can do it and I can do it well. So well-being is if you think about well-being in the context of what are the elements that constitute a life well-lived? Right. And I'm going to use some data on this one because I think it's the best way to describe it. So in the book, we use Gallup's data and and there's a, and even though I left the company, there's a ton of research that I still believe in. And I still use in all my work from Gallup and well-being is one of them. They have some of the most in-depth well-being um, data and research. And what they've been able to identify is their five elements of well-being, right? It's purpose. Well-being is the first one. It's, it's, what do you get to do every day? You know, for most of us, it's our job. Do we like it? And it's why our well-being starts to suffer when Mm -hmm. the job is not good, Um, because then our physical well-being goes and our, you know, other parts of well-being goes. So it's purpose, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a paid job. It's why as we get older and we retire, and you know, I have someone that lives with me now that's recently retired and you have a father that's retired. Jeez, don't even... I know, that's Don't even get us started. Yeah, literally. Those two men, geez, they're yes. the ones on the Appalachian Trail together. And just, you know, yes. as they say, retirement is not for the faint of heart, even though they have nothing to do. But anyway. <laughs> anyway, 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 another podcast. Um, <laughs> but it's why when you when you are no longer in, like employed in that way or have given your life and now you find yours, you have to have a figure out what the purpose is. Yeah. You know, it could be voluntary. It could be part-time. It could be something, but you need, yeah. what is it that I get to get up and do every day? And I get to use my strengths. I get to use my talents. I get to make a different, make an impact. So that's purpose, well-being, financial well-being. You know, are you managing your finances in a way that you can live the life that you want? There's no number behind it. You don't have to reach, you know, this much money, but, but it's, this is the kind of life I want to lead. Am I ma- managing my finances so I can do that? Yeah. Um, so it's purpose, finance, uh, financial well-being, um, physical well-being. Do I have the energy to do the things that I want to do? Um, this is where women get caught because physical well-being isn't about a dress size, a pant size, a weight. It's about the energy. Do I have, you know, the energy, the can I move through the world in a comfortable way? So that's physical well-being, social well-being. Do I have ha- uh, happy, healthy relationships in my life? Mm-hmm. Um, and then community well-being is: Do I like where I live? Do I feel safe where I live? Am I connected within the community in some way? And it can be, you know, do I volunteer? Do I belong to a gym where I see people in my community? Do I go to a church? Do yeah. I whatever that is for people? It's why we were all suffering in our well-being when we were locked down for the pandemic. Because yep. community well-being was suffering. Yep, completely. Um, so that's that's how we describe well-being in the book. And for me, that's how I think about my well-being when I go down those five elements on a regular basis. Where am I on these? Yeah, no, I definitely, I one of the great things in the book, and again, we'll talk more about it in the next episodes, but you both in your chapters, both you and Kendra, have so many great questions that made me sit there, which is why the modules are perfect. But I sat there and I was just thinking about it and those different aspects of well-being, I did. I sat there and I was like, especially like socially and and community and like thinking about, okay, well, do I feel comfortable in that? Am I getting what I actually want out of it? Or is it the expectation that I'm supposed to have a thousand friends or have this thing that I'm doing or whatever, like, what is it supposed to be for me and kind of what do I want personally? And so that's it was, it was great to kind of sit back and do all this homework. You guys just gave us homework, (laughs) but I love that. Good. Yeah, that's good. And and that social one is a hard one because um, for your generation and other generations, social media impacts that, 
you know, you, you see all your friends out and you're like, wait, why am I not there? Yeah. You see, wait, they were there two weeks. Why wasn't I invited? And, and, and you're right. And we think, you know, when we see those images, we think we need to be with all these mm-hmm. people all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I, for one, you know, as much as I public speak, as much as I'm in, I tend to be on the introvert side of the spectrum and I don't need a bunch of friends. I need a couple really good friends that I love being with, that we can have deep conversations with. You know, I don't, I always say, I don't like cocktail conversation that exhausts me. I'll do it when I have to, but that's not what I want to do. Same. I have a really hard time with that. I like, I understand that things can be a slow burn and not everybody is, you know, you don't get to read everybody's whole book, right? Like you get maybe a chapter or a page or two, but I think the, yeah, the cocktail conversation sometimes drives me nuts. And I have a really hard time with that in social situations. But then I also, now I'm getting to a place where I'm like, you know what, if this is all we get for the next hour at this dinner, great. That is what I will do. And then that's fine. And so, yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. I totally get that. And feeling you only need a couple, like really, really close people that mean a lot to you and, you know, quantity, quality over quantity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I have an interesting question for you. Is there something that happened in your life that didn't go the way you expected, but ultimately the outcome was great or better than you could have hoped? Hmm. So let me, let me answer this in a little different way, but I think I'm getting to what you're asking. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to when I decided to leave my job at Gallup because my, because I loved the work, I'd still be there today. You know, I'd still be doing that work. What didn't go the way I expected it was the culture inside the organization, mm-hmm. the culture inside. So, and that was my personal experience. You know, you can talk to other people at Gallup. They may say, no, it was great. But my personal experience and the people that I was working with at the time, you know, it became toxic and it became, mm-hmm. um, and so that didn't go. And, and so when I left, there was no plan. Yeah. There was no, where, where am I going to go next? And it, today I look at it almost as a blessing mm-hmm. because I feel like at the age of 61, I'm doing the work that the 61 years yeah. pre- prepared me to do, that this is what, what I should, this is the work that I'm doing now be, with Horner Education Group and the Lucy Leadership Project and that focused on women in the book and working with Kendra. This is the work that all of that, even the heartbreak um, that, you know, of leaving that job prepared me for, this is what I, this is what I've always been meant to do. Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? Uh, You know, that's a hard one because Mm -hmm. if you, if, if we say everything happens for a reason or, you know, there was a divine plan in some way. What I, the problem I have with that is it negates us and the decisions that we are able mm-hmm. to make for ourselves, mm-hmm. whether they're good or, 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 um, because I could have left and taken a job somewhere else, you know, at a profit yeah. or nonprofit or done something else. And I decided not to do that. So, so, so maybe that's a, maybe that's not a binary answer, a yes or yeah. no. It's more, a. I think part of it is. You know, I think Mm -hmm. maybe there's this divine plan somewhere that says, you know, the world is going to prepare me, going to give me the skill sets, going to give me Mm -hmm. the experience, going to give me the connections, going to give me all of that. But then you're going to have to go through something and the decisions you make Mm -hmm. after that can, can go, can go one way or the other. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that that's an either or it might be a yes and. Yeah. Yeah. And it negates like the hardship that people go through, right. To be like, well, it happens for a reason. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't think so, but no, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And with it, every it, choice you make, you have a consequence. So it's really up to you to make that okay. choice and do what you will with it and like it. learn something from it. So yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. No, I agree. 
And so what have been some of the most important lessons or impactful lessons that you've learned in your life? Hmm. Um, so some of them are, don't wait to start. Mm. Again, again, it's a woman's issue, uh, more than men, you Mm. know, women look at a job posting and they wait till they meet nine out of 10 of the criteria to apply men do it when they hit three. Yep. You know, um, so don't, don't wait. Um, I coach a lot of women that are trying to figure out what they want to do next. Well, why don't you just apply? See what happens. Mm-hmm. Start yep. that business. See what happens. It, 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 if it doesn't go according to plan, create another plan. Mm-hmm. So, so, so part of, so I would say that's one, don't wait. The other one is define your own, define what you how do I say this? Define your own failure. You know, so when I think about Horner Education Consulting Group, I mean, it was called something completely different. I was going to focus on bringing good professional development to rural school districts because it's hard for them to get out and yeah. to have access. That that didn't work out. I could have then just closed up shop and said, I'm not going to do this. Instead, I regrouped, changed the name of the of my company, of my business decided really what do I want to do and deliver and offer yeah and so define you know it's it's one of those you know we use the term fail up mm. you know or but I think it's really about having a process for yourself to when you when things don't go according to plan to go through okay what's next what yeah. did I learn what do I need to adjust and what's next mm-hmm. um so Okay. So am I answering your question? (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. So I think some of the things things I learned along the way is that the other thing that, and I think this has just always been a part of who I am. And that is, um, find, find where you can make a difference in the world. You know, uh, whether that's in a big way, you know, like Shelby's going to do is going to be a public defender and Mm -hmm. she's going to, you know, represent people, people that may not have equal representation Mm -hmm. or good quality representation, that kind of thing. Or if it's something within the company that you work for, you know, Mm -hmm. there's data that came out not too long ago that says your generation and generations just ahead of you. One of the things they're looking for in companies that they go to work for is, are they involved in some kind of social justice work? Mm-hmm. Uh, they want that. They want their companies to be the 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 best, most thriving companies are involved mm-hmm. in something like that. So yeah. I would say I asked that at my like my most recent my current job. I started in April, and I asked that during my interview. It was like, well, where do you stand on these like DEI, you know, trainings? Do you have those? How are you like handling this? You know, coming out of the pandemic, these things that have happened in our country, those kind of things, because it's important. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another thing I, I will always do is where are those um, areas that you can, that you can make an impact, whether it's, you know, just within your own community or something, you know, nothing is ever too small. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that. I love that. And I was talking, one of the guests for this season is a friend of mine from college who is a teacher who I, she's the one I think I told you where she was like, I'm getting my principal to buy your book for the entire school. And she was saying that she doesn't always think of herself as a bold person, even though I've always thought so. And, but she finds herself being very vocal at her like staff meetings with her other teachers. And she's like, I've learned that, you know, I, a lot of times I'm saying something that somebody else is thinking, but I just like had the courage to say it or to stand up for it. And you can see the light in the other people or other women's eyes in that room. And that's a very brave Thing to do and a lot of the times when you do stand up for yourself you know somebody else in the room is hoping that somebody else will do that and maybe you just have to be that person yeah and that gets me to maybe the fourth thing and that is figure out how you can first become an ally mm-hmm. you know and an ally is someone who is starting to kind of unpack or unwrap mm-hmm. their own you know, I mean, we all have internalized racism. 
women have internalized misogyny, you know, things happen to us that don't just dissipate. You know, yeah. they just don't disappear in the air. We internalize those things. You know, it's why we, it's why we tear each other down. It's why mm-hmm. we remark on a woman's hair before we remark on what the smartest things she just said. You know, mm-hmm. it's why you, when, when a woman's running for president, the whole focus is on her pantsuits mm-hmm. and not on <laughs> you know, what she, her policy yeah. is. Yeah. So that's all internalized misogyny. So we have to do our own work and that ally, it starts by being an ally. I want to figure that out. I want to unwrap that. And I want to figure out how I can stand side by side with all women, Mm -hmm. white women, women of color, black women, indigenous women, members of the LGBTQ plus community, all of us, that's allyship. Then we figure out how do you move to become an accomplice, right? An accomplice is I'm going to, what you just described, you know, when we're in a meeting and you have a great idea and it's overlooked, but the man at the end of the table says the exact same thing you just said, (laughs) I'm going to say, hold on a minute. You know, Kendall just said that I want, since it was her original idea, let's unpack it. That's an accomplice, but ultimately we want to be co-conspirators and Mm -hmm. co-conspirators are, I will use and risk what I have in order to disrupt the systems to make them fair for everybody. And what I have as a white woman is privilege. Mm-hmm. And so I can use my privilege to begin to disrupt systems that are unfair to other women or whose women's voices have been marginalized. So yeah. those are the three areas we want to move through as women. Yeah. No, I love reading that in your book. I and the way that you just described that now is so great and such such a great use of those words in you know a way that I didn't think about it and I and I just loved it like that was one of my one of the tabs that I have in this book it's just like I loved that and so I'm really excited to talk to you and Kendra more about it well and we would encourage we would encourage your listeners to google um it's a YouTube video of Dr. Bettina Love out of NYU and the way she describes allyship, uh, co- um, accomplice, and co-conspirator. I mean, it is just spot it on. Is spot on. And it's mm-hmm. funny and it's, you know, but the way she describes it is just perfect. And that's kind of where we got our teaching from. Oh, I love that. I love that. And yeah. so what's something you would tell your younger self? Um, I would tell my younger self... that you don't have to be the one that maintains the peace. Yeah. And that you're not responsible for making sure everyone else feels comfortable. Mm. Yeah, I have a hard time with that. Yeah. I don't know if it's my own anxiety as well, but yeah. No, and and, and I think what comes along with that is it's okay if somebody doesn't like me. Yeah. Please tell me how you can get, be okay with that, because that's something I really want to work on. I think it's a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay if, you know, and if you're going to do big, impactful work, that's going to happen. I mean, when Kendra and I keynote together and the minute I say white woman privilege, I know there's going to be someone in the group and it's happened several times now. And it's been, we've seen it in writing on evaluations. We've seen, you know, we've had it verbally expressed to us that women are uncomfortable. White women are uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I have come to believe is if what I'm saying is the truth and someone is feeling uncomfortable, then I'm doing my job. Yeah. You know, and it's not about me saying oh, okay, I'll use different words. It's about me helping that person get through that. Where are you feeling that? Did it feel like a gut punch? If it did, why? Yeah. You know, what what can you do? You know, get yourself a journal, write about it, write about what you're feeling, whatever, when you hear that, because Mm -hmm. at some point in time, it's got to move from your gut Mm -hmm. to your heart, to your head. So that Mm -hmm. when someone says to you, you have privilege, you don't, Yeah. you know, because it, it doesn't mean that we all haven't gone through difficult times. I mean, read the book. You'll see yeah. I've gone through. It doesn't mean we, it just means everything I went through 
had nothing to do with the color of my skin. Yeah. And, and systems weren't created in order for it to be harder for me mm-hmm. to, to move through the world. Um, and yeah, so yeah, so it's, you know, if, if someone doesn't like me, if someone doesn't like what I'm saying, if someone doesn't like the message, especially women, <laughs> you got some exploring to do. Yeah, I don't know what to tell <laughs> you. Someone rapping to do. Yeah, there you go. You have someone rapping to do. I like that. That yeah. should be, yeah, you see that that look in their eye and then you're just like, that's, that's what you should say to them. <laughs> no, I like that. And yeah. so what's the worst piece of advice someone's ever given you? You have to, uh, yes, I got this piece of, this is one that comes up in my head over and over again. You have to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah, I was why told did that. I say that? If, why? I, I was told that in my former job that when you go in to see a client, you need to be the smartest person in the room. And I remember hearing that thinking, I don't, that doesn't sit right with me mm-hmm. because I, I'm really smart about the things that I can deliver and I do. But when I go to work with an organization or a school district, I will Mm -hmm. never know Mm -hmm. about that school district, the way the people who are living in that school district every single day, or that organization who are working and living through that organization every single day. I need, Mm -hmm. and I think it's a very arrogant way of moving through, through the world, because what it says is I know everything, there's nothing you can't teach me. Yeah. You know, I have to be smarter than you. Yeah, and, and what it does is it met, it immediately says, we're not going to be partners. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to, I'm going to be, I'm here to tell you, yeah. you know, it, it's a hubris way of yeah. moving through the world. So that was the, I think that was one of the worst pieces of advice I got that in any room you're in, you have to be the, you have to be the smartest person in the room. Yep. And yep. I, I feel that, <laughs> feel that. Yeah. And so you talk about in your book, showing up courageously. Can you tell us a little bit more about that for you? Yeah. So I'm going to use some Brene Brown words, right? Um, Because it's just the best way to describe it. So showing up courageously means I'm going to choose courage over comfort. I'm going to choose to do what's right and not what is easy and expedient. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to see, this was several years ago. I went to hear, um, this social justice activist that I follow on social media speak. Um, this was, I think, uh, Martin Luther King weekend or something like, you know, birthday weekend. It was, uh, a, a speech he was giving. So I went to hear him speak and he, someone in the audience asked him, and actually it was a white person in the audience that asked him, you know, what is our role in, in the racial reckoning work and, you know, uh, what is our, our role in racial deconstruction? And he said something that I've always taken to heart. And he said, speak the truth in every room you're in. You are in different rooms than I'm in. You move through different places than I do. You move through a lot of white spaces. When a joke is told and it's not funny, tell them it's not funny. Yep. When words are used that are inappropriate, tell them that's not okay. Mm -hmm. If a discussion comes up and the truth is not being told in that discussion, call out, call out the falsehoods. So tell the truth in every room that you're in. So that was a piece of advice also that, uh, and that's, that's also where I think courage comes in. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's about, um, and that's where. In that moment, in those moments, you have to decide, do I want people to like me or do I want yeah. to be aligned to my values? Yeah. Because if I'm quiet, then I want people to like me. Yep. Um, if- I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to, you know, make anybody else feel uncomfortable by telling yeah. them that they're saying something completely inappropriate. Yeah. And again, I think it can be done in a way that you keep people's dignity, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes yeah it just needs to be called right out yeah but and there's certain you know words and things Mm -hmm. that you just don't um but you know I think that you know you can ask people why do you think that yeah where does where does that come from get curious with people where does that come from help me understand you know what what led you to believe that or you know those and then you're engaging in and and then you can that's not that's not my understanding my understanding is this 
But anyway, I think that's what courage is. Courage is when, you know, you, you, it may be uncomfortable, but you're going to choose, you're going to choose courage over comfort, comfort, and you're going to do what's right. And you're going to stay aligned to your values. You know, that's courage. Yeah. And I, I really like the part about asking people questions too, or why do you feel that way? Or why would you say that? Because I think as we've seen throughout, especially the last few years in our country, everybody's really quick to be defensive and everybody's really quick to take things personal. And there are some things that I know I'm going to feel like I'm being attacked when maybe I'm not. And obviously it's in my own best interest to be able to step out of myself and like see somebody else's perspective, but not everybody can do that. And so being able to ask those questions and have somebody explain themselves and then working through it that way is going to be a lot easier. And you might get through that a lot better and get through to them a lot better. And so that's yeah, important. One of, one of the things I tell the leaders that I work with all the time is curiosity is your superpower. Mm-hmm. Get curious with people, you know, yeah. ask the questions. Um, yeah. You know, I'm wondering why you chose that word. I'm wondering yeah. why, um, yeah. or now that's on certain words, but I'm wondering why <laughs> you, there's some yeah. words that no, we're not going to do that. Um, but yeah, you just get curious with people and, and yeah. figure out where they're coming from. It doesn't mean you agree with them, but then you can, you can, once you have that understanding of what's going on or why they think the way they think, yeah. then you, then you can hit them with the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so what does a good life look like to you? Like you look back and you're like, I had a good life. What does that look like? Um, my, my family's healthy. My family's thriving. Uh, the girls, Maddie and Shelby are thriving. They're, they're creating the life they want, mm. you know, not the life that, that we think that they should have, but the mm-hmm. life that they want and they're happy. Um, you know, my, my husband and I, Steve and I are happy, are, are doing the things in life that we want to do. Um, I'm still, I, I am not sure when or if I'm not going to have my toe in some kind of this work, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, I was just, I was just, uh, talking and coaching with the woman the other day who's in her seventies and she has, you know, she has a special ed coaching business and she's, she's not, she's not slowing down. So, you know, she's, she said, I, I, she's, she's on servicing these, these school districts and these most vulnerable children and students. And so, yeah, so, you know, a, a a great life is, you know, being able to do some of the things that we want to do travel. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, we love where we live. So, so to be here and, um, yeah, when every, when the people around have good friends, um, and I'm still doing work that makes an impact. Yeah. That's a good answer. I like that. Thank you. And so for my final and favorite question to ask all my guests, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? Uh-huh. Um, it's funny you asked me that question because what I tell my leaders is, what would you do even if you might fail? Oh, what would I do if I knew that I couldn't fail? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would, you know, I don't think I would do this now, but I was asked, I was asked in Fairfax to consider running for political office by, by, by the, the democratic party in Fairfax. Um, now we were getting ready to move. That's when we moved to we're about ready to move to Florida. And I told them, I said, I, I can't cause you yeah. know, we're getting ready to move. Um, and it's not so much what I do it, even if I couldn't fail as much as maybe, maybe it would be the fear of, of winning. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. Now I have to do the work <laughs> and now I have to show up and that, but, but that's something that always was kind of in the back of my mind, especially after, you know, running for the association. And mm-hmm. I mean, we had to, you know, I had to launch a full out campaign and do all that. Yeah. And and um, when when I was asked, would you would you at the time it was would you run for the school board, the local school board? And you know, in any locality that there's a progression. You know, you go to the school board, then you go to the state, and then you go. So mm-hmm. yeah, so I think maybe that's something that I would consider um, doing. I'm not sure I would do it now, you know, uh, or anytime soon. But yeah. yeah, politics are a whole different game. 
all I can say is it's messy, no matter who you are, where you are, and there's no escaping that. And it's the unfortunate side of that. But I could definitely see that. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the art of the art of compromise has kind of just gone away. Yeah. Everybody has to win and, and their side has to win. And, you know, mm-hmm. our yeah. we used to be a country of compromise, which is what has kept us so, you know, healthy for, for and that art of compromise has just. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. Yeah. Got to bring it back. Yep. Yeah. Well, Kelly, thank you so much. This was wow. Like it went by so fast. It was so interesting. It's great to hear you speak. And I just loved everything you had to say. Thanks, Kendall. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. Um, Thanks for having Kendra and and thanks for promoting the book with us. um, Yeah. Because we just, we're trying to fill you asked me earlier, you know, what we're trying to do, but one of the things we're also trying to do is it, here, here's, let me say this to women in all professions. We meet, we gather, we mentor each other, we network with each other, but especially in education, we're not breaking through doing that. So we've got to do something else. Mm-hmm. And it starts with us. What's our unraveling, what's our unpacking, what's our unwrapping we have to do. So we show up differently. How do we become allies, accomplices, and co-conspirators together? And then how do we disrupt the systems in order for, and, and we are focusing on the education system, but it could be anything. It could be the medical community. It could be the legal community. It could be higher ed. It could yep. be big business. It could be any of it. How do we, because if we don't, we can't thrive when we try to, we become a, we, we try to hustle ourselves into what is the acceptable prototype of, of a leader? We have to create, we have to create other ways of leading and it's time to do that. So, yeah. Um, so I appreciate you. You know, I love you. I've known you even Maybe. That, before that, before yeah. that <laughs> yes, preconceived. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. This was incredible. I've always thought you've always been so bold and so brave and so outspoken and so kind and so thoughtful and all those things together and reading this book and getting to know you and Kendra a little bit more. And the, the, and again, we'll talk more about this in the book club episode, but like the amount of, you know, personal as well as information that's put in this was just very beautifully done. And I think it really speaks to you more so because of that. And so I really appreciated it and I loved it. And I'm so excited for everybody to listen to part two of the book club episode. And if you haven't already listened to Kendra's episode and I'm really excited. So thank you again for being here and everybody stay tuned for the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to unofficial book club where life and stories meet. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and follow me on Instagram at unofficial book club pod. Please don't forget to rate and share with all of your friends. Until next time.